everyone, and welcome back to another great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Christopher Brown. Today's guest has had a busy year, running both in the 2019 provincial election and the 2019 federal election. Jordan Steen joins me to talk about her path to politics, environmental policies in Alberta and Canada, what feminism means to her, and being a progressive in a conservative province. So sit back, relax, and enjoy cross-border interviews featuring Jordan Steen. Jordan, thank you very much for doing this. My pleasure. Um... As I've started every interview with former politicians, former candidates, where does your sense of duty come from? Oh, good question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Really take you off guard from moment one. Where does your sense of duty come from? So I'm the oldest of a a large family. Uh, There's four in my family. And we in my family have dealt with lots of uh, various challenges around socioeconomic stuff and um, I I think being the oldest you just you just wear that hat you just wear whatever hat you need to my youngest sister is seven years younger than me and so when I was a teenager well from a you know seven years old I was helping care for her and then you know when I was older uh, I was in university calling her all the time just making sure everything was okay at home and uh, yeah I think the sense of responsibility comes from when you're the oldest people expect that of you and then when your family deals with challenges, you kind of, it, that puts on a heavier burden, burden, honor, responsibility, all those things. And Were you raised in a political household? No. Really? Not at all. No. So your, fa- your mom and dad never talked about politics around the kitchen table or so even my grandma? Only, yeah. I mean, my grandma, I would say, was political. Um, she was, all, but her sense of politics, she's, I would say, a liberal. Um, her sense of politics was always... Uh, you are very lucky to be able to vote because women fought for years to be able to give you that uh, ability and it's important that you inform yourself and do that and my grandma and I were the closest for sure and before she passed I stayed with her for long periods of time um, because she wanted to stay in her own home so we all kind of shared that responsibility I would stay in Edmonton that's where she lived and we would sit and watch the national every night together and talk about politics Um, but she was really really the only one in my family that I ever had conversations about that with. At my dinner table, it was... We had political natured conversations around, you know, the rights of gay people, which they were called gay when I was young. Now it's LGBTQ. But of course, like that was the conversations when I was a teenager. Kind of, yes, dad, they have a right to exist. And yes, my best friend is gay and I'm inviting him over and there's nothing you can do about it. But they weren't political in that they were partied. Okay, Uh, so they never took out a membership. And I was, did they put signs up in the lawn? Because where does your sense of politics come from? Does it come? from your grandmother more because you don't typically hear of a my family was political I grew up in a political family my aunt ran for politics when I was five and uh, we had that interest because my grandmother always said you have to get involved you have to go and volunteer so where does that come from for you is it your grandmother was it did she say you need to get out and engage and volunteer you can't hear me on the podcast but I'm shaking my head (laughs) (laughs) because no there was really I, I don't think the idea of running for politics literally ever occurred to me ever until 
about the moment someone asked me to run was the first time it occurred to me to run. Okay. Which sounds, and my family, when I, when I told them I was running was like, oh yeah, of course. That's perfect (laughs) for you. That's the perfect job for you. So this is 2019 in January of last year. January of like this year. This year. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So, um, do you remember that conversation when you first got approached? You should run. What was that like? So, I I would say I was always very political. Yeah. I was always the one in my family that was, like I said, arguing for human rights of any kind. I always had this sense of global hum- citizen responsibility. Always knew I wanted to do something that helped people in like a very vague sense of the word, or you know, guided in all kinds of directions sense of the word. Uh, never talked about politics, like I said, um, other than, you know, thinking, oh, those neighbors are real jerks, but not knowing like what their party affiliations were of any kind. And then I joke that when Rachel Notley became the premier, I was like, oh my God, women can be politicians. (laughs) Like, I I know that sounds ridiculous because there have been incredible women, you know, first ministers in the past, but I I hadn't been, you know, in the know or aware or thinking about it. And growing up in Calgary, maybe we knew a neighbor who was a counselor or who had run as an alderman or whatever, but it just was always like some kid I knew's dad. And it never occurred to me that a women did that and b that they would say be able to say things publicly that Rachel was saying which was that we need to take care of people and all of these things that I was like yeah heck yeah why has no one said this before um so I thought those things and then a friend of mine that I had been kind of going to punk shows with when I was a teenager uh I ran into her and she said oh I work for Rachel Ollie and I was just like cool um can we have coffee and uh I emailed her right away and uh we went for coffee and we sat down and I was just like I really don't like Jason Kenny. what do we do about this thinking let's put flyers on the bus yeah. like I literally had zero clue what and at this point did you have zero interest of ever running yeah it, literally it never occurred to me so but there must be something in the back of your head that said oh, if it ever came up to me and someone approached me I might know no like literally it never occurred to me point blank never occurred to me I thought when I said how do we stop Jason Kenny?" I had gone online to the NDP website and applied for a field organizer job okay yeah so they approach you to run as a candidate yeah I think it was a fairly glib conversation but she was like you should run you should run so <laughs> you decide to run in a riding that has an incumbent NDP MLA mm-hmm. so that's a little daunting right there you're, you're going up against a incumbent typically they don't lose nomination battles but yeah uh, you won yours <laughs> Well, again, naively, and in a good way, that that's exactly what politics should be like, right? So I... I was told you should run. I knew that I wanted to run somewhere where I would be able to have a chance. Air, I air quoted that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and because I knew it was, I had some idea that it was going to be a lot of work. I didn't know what that would look like. Um, 
you know, I was in between businesses. So I had time. I was like, oh, this would be a great project. Um, so I had time and I thought I, if I'm going to use my time, I want to run in, in an area where there's a chance and where I can make some noise. And, uh, and did you have connections with Claude? And I, and I had some sense that I was like, I don't want to disrupt someone that's killing it. Like, yeah. I don't want to get in there and like make a bunch of enemies right away because for like a candidate that is doing fantastic work currently. Yeah. Um, so I was sort of given the map of Calgary and suggested here's a variety of different areas that you may want to consider. And I just got access to the membership list from Glenmore and I started making calls and the first calls were literally, hi, I have no idea what I'm saying in this phone call, but I am interested in, you know, being your candidate. Can you tell me about your current MLA and are you happy with the work that they've been doing? And, you know, what would you want from your MLA going forward? That was really the question that I was asking everyone. And after, you know, 150 phone calls, it became really clear that no one on the membership list had ever heard from that person person, uh, save maybe one or two exceptions and that they wanted more engagement. They wanted someone who was, you know, passionate and, uh, you know, reached out, which is exactly what I was doing. And so, uh, so I put my name forward. The nomination meeting? It was the beginning of February, I think. Okay. So yeah. very short turnaround from February to when the election's called, I think at the end of, I want to say end of March, beginning of April. I think it was end of February. End of February, yes, because yeah. I went back to sitting, yes. Yeah, it was within two weeks of me, or a week and a half, or two weeks of me winning. So you get thrust upon the political stage yeah. in a big way. I guess so, yes. <laughs> so as a political newbie, mm-hmm. you have to get a campaign team together and try to bring this home for the party. You're running in a very conservative province. What's that like? When you're out there, you're trying to get a team together, you're running against a uh, juggernaut, Jason Kenney, let's put him that way, because mm-hmm. he has the backing of the conservative machine behind him. Yeah. What's happening through your head right now? Are you going, okay, I need to put that aside, I can do this, I can win it, or this is an uphill battle for me? So, you know, I had seen um, the MLA in that riding win by six votes. Yep. So to me, I was like, all it takes is six votes. I just got to get the right six. It was kind of how I, that was my mantra, which I told myself over and over as we were running. And although I loathe this comparison, I sort of approached the campaign like a business. Like I, I hate comparing government and business because they're not the same. Yep. But, um, but I, I, I sort of approach, so I'm a small business owner and basically I, I approach it with the same attitude. How do you get your customers? Where do you get them? You set up shop and then you're like, okay, here's these co- cups of coffee. How do I get customers in the door? And so I used a lot of the same mentality. Like I thought, okay, we need to find people. Where do we find people? Put it on the internet. How do you get it on the internet? Oh, you make a, an Instagram account that's attractive and appealing and on message and, you know, uh, attracting people. And then you message them directly and say, Hey, would you want to come help me? I mean, I probably got 30 or so volunteers just from Instagram. Wow. And that was before I even had about 500 followers because I, I just was really adamantly messaging people and getting responses back and asking them to come out and help me. And even when I was asking them, will you come volunteer on my campaign? Quite a few of them had no idea what they were getting themselves into either. So it was a lot of new, a lot of green people. Um, newbies in the sense, uh, even, but as I had gone through the membership list, 
a lot of people had mentioned, oh, if you're if you're door knocking, I'll come help you. And I thought, great. So I just made a note of all those names. And then after I won, called them right away and went, we're putting together a team. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, and honestly, I think I was really surprised by how many people showed up to volunteer because as a person who hadn't ever door knocked or been involved in politics before, I was shocked that people even did this. Like, this is crazy. You're going to spend your evening coming out in tw- minus 25, knocking on a stranger's door, ask, bringing up politics? Like, what? That's a thing? So, what's that like for a political newbie and a new candidate to knock on that first door? Do you remember that first door that you knocked on? Do I remember my first door? I don't remember the first door. But did you get a, a, a atmosphere when you're knocking on doors during that campaign of people are receptive to listen to me? Or uh, because when I, I know when I knocked on doors for my husband's campaign, there was a very big divide, right? There was the, I got a few doors slammed in my face and I wasn't even the candidate. And then I got the, oh yeah, put up a sign, let's do it. Yeah, I don't know. I think I went in with the expectation that everybody hated politicians. <laughs> okay. So so when people were, oh, good for you for being out here, or um, yeah, Rachel's doing a great job. It was so exciting for me. I mean, I'll say I wasn't political growing up, but I wasn't political because I had literally zero hope that there was a thing called politics that I would be interested in. So when people would say, oh, I love Rachel. I think she's doing a great job or I'm so happy to see Alberta become more inclusive, things like that. I I didn't know any of those people existed. I joke often that I had to go to school in Nova Scotia to meet another progressive. Um... I was, I mean, after the election, when I look back, I'm like, okay, 8,000 people voted for the NDP in Glenmore, which is a really conservative writing, or people say it is. Um, That's 8,000 people that I didn't know existed before 2015, or before 2019. Yeah. So I was like, this is amazing. That is so (laughs) many people. Um, It's something to grow on for the next election, right? Totally. Because you just keep on adding. And you just mentioned a word that I want to get your description of. What does progressive mean to you? Oh, good question. (laughs) (laughs) Because before we go further, because some people might define it a different way than I define it, so I want to know from Jordan. What does it mean? Yeah, I mean, I use the word a lot. It's nice to be questioned on it. I would say it means, so the world is changing. It's changing with the world or being kind of a step ahead of things. So it's politics of inclusion, politics of diversity, politics of forward looking, politics of um, seeing uh, the government play an important role in keeping the society that we have. It's... It's sort of the anti-libertarian uh, clawback on government. It's progressive. It's forward-looking. Okay. Um, that's, I think, what it means to me. So, back to 2019, you're defeated in Glenmore. Mm-hmm. I, w- I know what defeat feels like. I ran for the Liberals in 2015. And moving forward, I said I wasn't going to run again. (laughs) But you (laughs) decide there's a federal election coming up. I'm going to put my name forward for that, too. Yes, I'm a warrior. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Typically, you don't see the cross party from NDP to liberal or liberal to NDP. But you ran for the federal liberals and the provincial NDP. What was that decision like? So... I woke up after, you know, after April 16th and I had spent most of the election 
sort of building a, a brand in a sense. And I mean that in like building a movement, building a group of volunteers, uh, building hope. And uh, a lot of what I talked about on the campaign trail was the Alberta Climate Leadership Plan, um, partially because I was so delighted and surprised to like the more I learned about it, the more I liked it. And the more I just couldn't understand why more Albertans weren't 100 percent behind this um, because it was doing everything Albertans wanted it to be doing, which is, you know, addressing climate change. It there were literal CEOs of oil and gas companies clapping on the stage behind Rachel when it was announced. It was in step with the rest of the country and it was helping Alberta's economy. Really, I mean, yeah. I we had CEOs of solar panel companies come door knocking with me, and they were saying, "Hey, we just installed solar panels on the the community association down the road, and the arena, and the Southland Leisure Center, and the school up the street." And people, even people that didn't want to hear about politics, were like, "Really? That's so cool!" Um, and the, he would say, "You know, oh, and we're hiring. We hired six new people on Monday." There was this real sense of we're moving forward and, you know, oil and gas companies are with us. It was just so positive. I was really shocked that Albertans didn't see that. And for me, I think one of the things that we haven't talked about yet was that climate for me has been, was probably the reason I said yes to running in the first place, because I have a close friend that I know from university who works for a climate organization that helps support organizations across the country, like grassroots organizations. Okay. It's a network sort of thing. And I remember listening to her on a podcast say, you know, the, the best way that you can deal with your climate anxiety is to get involved. And the best thing that you can do is help people that care about climate policy get elected. And I just thought, I'm going to do one better. I'm going to run. Um, so that was really my number one motivator. I talked about that constantly on the campaign trail. I, div I figured out ways and language to use with people in Glenmore that we're never going to be receptive to that kind of thing, but suddenly were and surprised sort of me and themselves. And uh, so after the election, I woke up and I, I was I knew it was going to get canceled. I was so devastated because I had just fallen in love with this policy. Um, but there, there's a silver lining because if it gets canceled, federal government then has said, if you cancel that uh, environment leadership initiative, we're going to impose a, I, I forget the words that they use, but let's... A national one. Yes, a yeah. national one on... Price on pollution. Yeah. Yes. So there must be a silver lining there for you as an environmentalist, I'm exactly. assuming. Yeah. That while Jason Kenney might take it away, Justin Trudeau is going to bring one back. Uh, literally, my thought was, never thought I'd say this. Thank God for Justin Trudeau. Really? <laughs> like, I woke up that morning and just thought, oh, my God, he's going to cancel. Jason Kenney is going to cancel the Alberta Climate Leadership Plan. Thank God we're not all going backwards. Yeah. That there's still people in this country that are looking forwards, that are putting a price on pollution, that are that are that have the courage to stand up to Jason Kenney and no matter what happens. And then I thought, and then my thoughts were literally I, a call to Kent Hare. How do we make sure you don't lose your seat? Never thought I'd be asking you this question. <laughs> and, uh, and not that he's, he was, you know, he did a lot of great, um, things for city center. And, but I just, I was kind of tired. Didn't think I would be running, you know, participating in a federal election. And, uh, yeah, I called him, said, how, how do we make sure you don't lose your seat? And he was the one then that asked me to run in confederation. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, and confederation, 
it had a strong turnout in 2015 for the Liberal Party. There was a very slim win for Len Weber, if I'm not mistaken. Matt Grant did a lot of work there. Yeah, so Matt Grant knocked for two years straight. Yeah. I mean, he did an incredible, admirable growing of the base. Like, he really proved that door knocking works, that that you can grow grassroots movement. And he was, he would have been an incredible MP. Um, But he lost by... you know, 1,500 votes. Uh, so he really did build the base. And uh, it was, he wasn't running again because he had just had a kid. It was personal reasons. So same thing, like the provincial election, I, I went around to people that I knew and I just asked questions. I asked Matt why he wasn't running again. I asked, uh, you know, Kent what he sort of felt like the the climate was in Calgary for liberals. I asked uh, people in, that were in my network from green initiatives, you know, would you get behind me if um, if I ran federally on a platform only talking about climate policy, like climate for Alberta, because and I'm sure like without talking too much about policy, we really need Albertans in those conversations. Which is the next set of questions I'm about to ask. Okay, yeah. Why is the environment such a major issue for you? Why is it so important? So, I mean, aside from my talking points that I used (laughs) in the campaign, I mean, I am proud to be Albertan. And I worked for Nexon as a summer student. Um, I, I worked for Nexon in the health and safety, environment and social responsibility team, where I sat around meetings in, you know, I was the minute taker, so I wasn't important by any stretch. But I remember listening to conversations, you know, back when I, in 2000, when would that be? 2008, 2009, where people were saying, there's this you know, substance that's kind of potentially leaking. Should we be addressing this? And we're like, we'll put it on the, the agenda for next week. And that happened for the whole summer. <laughs> and I remember thinking, wow. oh my God, yeah. like, I know these people are good people. I know they really care. But it, if there's no financial incentive or something, it's very hard to get businesses to make it a priority. And I, I sort of understand, you know, that on every level as a business owner, as a person who sat in those rooms, as a person who cares deeply about climate policy. And I also know that the government can play a big role in changing those things, um, you know, by making certain options more price competitive than others and certain better air quotes decisions for the environment, more price competitive than others. And those things really will drive decisions faster than, you know, the the moral argument. So I, I'm getting kind of deep into things, but... No, it's good because I like this type of conversation uh, and I, I want to know after you finish, why do you think that doesn't connect with the everyday Albertan? Well, I think the environment... So the conversation around the environment, especially in Alberta, but nationally has been framed to us as it's economy or environment. Yeah. And I think what I discovered in the Alberta climate leadership plan is that that's actually not true, that we can do both and that we have done both and we are doing both. And Oh my God, everyone should be on board now. It's still framed. And maybe this is a journalism thing. Maybe this is a debate political advantageous thing. There's a lot of reasons for it, but it's still framed to everyone as though it's this com- this question of environmental economy. And it frustrates me to no end because uh, 
especially now when you see major banks making decisions, financial decisions, pulling their money away from fossil fuels, pulling their investment books, pulling loan books away. When you see, uh, you know, renewable energy sources being price competitive, like solar electricity is now price competitive with natural gas. That's incredible. I mean, the average person doesn't need to know that, but it's it's great because it's good for the economy and that's where it's going anyways. And and I think the government can play a role in that and that's what they should be doing. But it's advantageous to uh, I, I honestly I don't know why it's continued to be framed that way. And it's it's because the biggest thing that you hear and when the uh, uh, environment leadership plan was put into place was it's going to raise money on everything. Mm-hmm. You have to agree with that, though, right? So, again, I think there's... Because I'm way- just playing devil's advocate here, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and that's fine. Um, so, the carbon price. Yes. We'll just... That's what you're... Or the, the carbon tax. We'll yes. just call let's, it let's, what people like to call it. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, um, yes, it sort of raises the price on things if you... You know, if a company is paying more to pollute... Um, then they may pass that on to the consumer. Absolutely. And I would say for the average Albertan, the Alberta Climate Leadership Plan and the National Plan even more so, eight out of 10 Canadians, and I did the math myself for everyone in my family, every single member of my family made more money on the rebate than what we, like our increase in energy prices were. So that's kind of a a moot point. Like I, yeah, there's a cost to the consumer that may go up, but actually I had people on the campaign trail come out of their house and say, I just want to tell you, I was in between jobs and I got my climate rebate and oh my God, it saved my life. It allowed me to fill up my car and get groceries. So it is actually this genius way of, of re-empowering people that are, you know, it's an extra 300 bucks in your pocket or in the case of the federal one, it'll be 444. So it's like this great way of redistributing, um, funds, but I will say, okay, fine. You're paying a little bit more six cents, you know, on your tank of gas. What I would argue is that the way that economies designed are designed right now is that they don't include the price of a lot of things. They don't include the price. Like the environment is a commodity. If you want to think of it that way, that is of a finite supply. So if you don't put a price on that, and if you don't put a value on that, then it will just like consume till the very end. So we need to be including a price in our economic system that takes into account other factors. So have you looked at Jason Kenney's environment policy that they just announced, I think uh, two, three weeks ago, if I'm not mistaken, him and Nixon announced that they're gonna uh, charge polluters or large polluters uh, a price on their pollution. Mm-hmm. So basically- It's a carbon tax. Basically. <laughs> yeah. um, Looking at their strategy and looking at the Trudeau-Notley strategy, Mm -hmm. do you see any difference there? I mean, if I didn't dislike Jason Kenney so much, I might almost be like, great, good for you. (laughs) He put a price on carbon. He put a carbon tax on pollution. Yeah, and great. Like, actually, that's great. Yes. Uh, I am really happy to see that. But it's it's not that much different. And I think what a carbon tax does on the average consumer is that it it it's a visual. It's like putting a line item on your tax bill. You're aware of where the money is going or what the money is, right? So it, it's something that forced people to think, oh, maybe I will not, you know, turn my heat up or whatever. It's sort of an, an incentive to do that. Um, 
it just brings it to mind for people, uh, which doesn't need to be a bad thing. And and also... Um, because I can tell you, when the carbon, ta- oh, carbon tax came in, I did slow down on my driving. Sure, I didn't yeah. drive everywhere because, you know what? If I needed to make one trip to the town that I lived in, because I lived up north, I made sure I went in once and I did everything I needed to do. Besides that... I wouldn't go in anymore. Right. And I think everyone started to do that, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think people just became more aware of it. Because the amount that the that it went up to fill your tank is, you know, anywhere from four to six cents, right? Yep. And, like, I could hand you right now a coupon from Safeway that says four cents off your gas. Yep. And you would probably lose it or not care, right? But, so it's not, like, it's it's... An emotional argument to say that it is strangling you. It's sticker price, right? Yeah. They see the sticker price and they go, oh, it's another four cents up. Yeah. But the reality is it didn't impact. I mean, I mean, I'm, I don't want to be ignorant about the fact that there were instances where people were impacted slightly more, but the rebate more than covered that. And I think, you know, it did maybe force a conversation about having more of a nuanced talk about rural versus urban. And that's important. But but for the average person that I knew, especially in Calgary, because we're talking about Calgary. It didn't impact people's lives dramatically, but it did actually change people's behavior. And that's important. And the money collected is going to green initiatives as well. Exactly. Yeah. And that's where I just, I I don't see the negative to that. No, there's no negative. (laughs) Exactly. But they can make spin doctors do it. They are able to spin anything into a positive for their side, right? So what I will say is when I looked at the Alberta Climate Leadership Plan, one of the things that struck me as really interesting was that there was only about $6 spent on advertising, um, marketing and advertising. And to me, that was not nearly enough because this was a a huge success story for Alberta. Um, And I really wanted that to be talked about more. So that's what I spent pretty much the whole campaign talking about. Um, And and I'll say that like $6 is not enough and the conversation was geared around the rebate and the tax and that to me was a mistake because when you're an NDP government or you're anything left of center and you're talking about a tax you've already lost as far as every conversation I've been in with anyone in Calgary (laughs) you've already lost and then you're basically on the defense and you're trying to make up ground when you start the conversations with Calgarians around hey did you know that the Southland Leisure Center has solar panels on it now isn't that cool and just down the street and the Red Deer Hockey Arena and your kids hot water system is 30% more efficient and we've saved like X number of million dollars in the last year uh, alone just on efficiency and light bulbs people like the those success stories and they go, oh, cool. And then you go, oh, yeah. And, and thank you for participating in that because that four cents at the at the pump, that's what it's paying for. And then it's framed to them in a totally different way. So to me, it was it was a mistake to talk about the tax in the first place. That should have been like the last thing that you mentioned. It should have been a, hey, here's all the great projects we're doing. But it's hard to do that before they're done. Yeah. And, and I really, I, I get that. It's just, it's. So do you consider yourself an environmentalist? Uh, yeah. I mean... Uh, so a- how do you justify Trans Mountain? As someone who ran as a liberal in 2019, yeah. you seem to be passionate about the environment. Yeah. How did you justify those two yeah. together? So, again, one of those <laughs> things in politics where you're like, oh, it's so hard to tell this story, but it shouldn't be. I mean... Our society that we live in is dependent on oil and gas. Yes. Like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Anyone in Vancouver or Quebec 
they are whether or not they realize it. There's also a future for oil and gas, and there's going to continue to be a market for it. Alberta right now is in a high cost, high carbon zone in the sense that it costs a lot of money to extract oil from the oil sands and it's very carbon intensive because it's a complicated process. I always say it's like it's like trying to get molecules out of sand and tar and gravel versus, you know, putting a straw into a lake in Saudi Arabia, right? So there there's a really big difference between like boilers that are boiling steam that they're car- it's carbon intensive. Yeah. So the reality is Alberta in order to stay relevant in future markets needs to move from a high cost high carbon to a low cost, low carbon. And uh, we can, government can help do that. And that's a win for everybody. And secondly, the market continues to be there. Alberta's, the analogy I use, oil and gas is, is sitting, gathering dust on the shelf. And there's no sense in us selling that for 10 cents on the dollar when every dollar of revenue could be spent on green energy projects. And what people don't realize is that pipelines don't in and of themselves increase emissions. The fear is that it'll increase production in the oil sands. And I totally get that fear, which is why it was negotiated with a cap. (laughs) And and that's like, that was how it was pat. It was basically, okay, Alberta will help you get your product to market for the value that you should be getting for your product. And uh, under the condition that you don't, you know, ramp up the amount of uh, CO2 that you're putting into the atmosphere. And that was agreed upon uh, in the Alberta Climate Leadership Plan. And that was the the condition. So I don't support pipelines because I love pipelines. I support uh, Canada lowering its emissions, period, full stop. And sometimes you need to, you know, pull a door backwards in order to walk through a doorway. You can't just like push your way through constantly. But if we're trying to meet our Paris targets. Yeah. We can't just be going around, but uh, building pipelines, increasing that, because like you said, it is going to increase the amount of oil that we do or bitumen that we do pull from the ground to ship it to uh, to Tidewater. You can't be doing that and trying to meet a target that we're not even on par to meet right now. So agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. But where do we... Okay, so what do we do now? So what's our alternative? We uh, So the Green Party platform, we'll look at that because that's on the other end of things, right? Their plan is to build a bunch of refineries, right? Yeah. Which, by the way, you need pipelines to get oil and gas to refineries. But okay, no pipelines. That's what they want to hear. We'll build refineries. Excellent. But you ask any expert in the field, refineries are extremely expensive to build and the return on your investment is very low. So it's very hard and Rachel fought tooth and nail to get refineries built in Alberta and she got two. Yeah. Um, the return and on- I think she just, tr- she tried to in, uh, get one built right at the end of her mandate as well yeah. with that incentive that I think it was like $2.3 billion incentive to build a refinery. Right, which don't slam anyone for fossil fuel subsidies, but okay. Yeah. But like to get a refinery built, you need either, so you don't put refineries near the producer, you put refineries near the consumer. Yes. And the consumer in Canada is very 
spread out and there's not very many of us. So you end up building a lot of refineries, which are extremely expensive. In some cases, it's a hundred years to pay off a refinery. Okay, fine. So you can't get private investment to do that because no one's crazy enough to do that. Then what does the party or does the government want to be in the business of owning a hundred refineries? So let's say a refinery is a hundred million dollars to build. Now you own a hundred million refineries. You're like now in billions of dollars as a government as like the biggest industry that you own is now oil refineries. Like that doesn't sound green to me at all and very confusing. And then, um, and those actually increase emissions don't like a pipeline in and of itself has zero emissions associated with it other than the increase in production, but refineries actually do increase emissions. So that's also confusing. And the reality is instead of spending whatever, hundred billion on refineries, why would you not just spend 4.5 billion or 5 billion on efficiency projects, which you could counteract the entire footprint of the oil sands by just doing a series of really aggressive efficiency projects across the country, which is like we in Alberta have a very high carbon footprint per capita, but the buildings we live in are not efficient. We all live very spread out. We don't have urban density. We drive everywhere. If you just address efficiency uh, very aggressively with 4.5 billion or 5 billion or whatever, you your bang for your buck is way bigger, but it's not going to be in a tweet and it's not going to be a ribbon cutting ceremony. So that's the frustration for me is that it's, I I want to lower emissions, like I said, period, full stop, but you're gonna lower emissions a lot better by focusing on efficiency, addressing, and then how do you pay for those efficiencies? Oh, you get this pipeline, which is, it's already selling, the market is there, it's the safest way to transport oil, something that's already got a market, something that's already being sold. We're just selling it at 10 cents on the dollar. So we're losing money there. Listen to Calgarians for two seconds. They're very angry about this and justifiably so. You know, get like help the economy not collapse in Alberta and use all of the revenue on efficiency and you've you've essentially won and made everyone happy. So in your opinion, what happened in the federal election that the liberals got wiped out of this province? Is it because they the average Calgarian, the average Albertan didn't think that Trudeau was listening? I mean, I heard rumors at certain points in the election that people in downtown Calgary were thinking, oh my God, worst case scenario would be a liberal Green Party coalition. Um, which, yeah, I mean, that would have been pretty disastrous for Alberta because both the NDP and the Green Party were explicitly against pipelines um, for the politically optical reasons that we all know very well. Yep. Um, which is ironic because the one NDP MP in this province the is pro-pipeline. Yeah, I know. Uh, which, you know. Exactly. So when... So the average Calgarian wants a, the biggest fear for them was, hey, Green Party, Liberal Alliance, a green, uh, sorry, a Liberal Green Party or a Liberal NDP Alliance where all pipelines are going to get shut down. Yeah. So the Calgarians were thinking, oh, that would be disastrous. So we, At least a Liberal majority is better. That was kind of the rumors that I heard. And I was like, yeah, that's great. And the reality is for Alberta, 
I actually think that's absolutely true. Really? A liberal majority government would have been the best uh, case scenario for Alberta. Yeah. So you think we're Alberta's in for troubling times over the next two years, hypothetically? I believe Alberta and Calgary in particular are at a turning point right now. We are either going to become like a, you know, dust bowl, one trick pony town where the economy collapsed and, you know, the streets went bare, or we're going to become a city that's, a, you know, a, a major city in the future. One that, you know, that rivals Vancouver, Toronto, that's got an incredibly rich, diverse economy, lots of culture, an incredible place to live, all of these things. Um, I think we're really at that. We're in a five-year window right now. And you think we, it's that small? Yeah, I do. Because I think global markets markets are moving very, 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 very quickly uh, towards all the things that we were talking about, uh, yeah. towards uh, renewable alternatives. and Diversifying their... Yeah, the race for the last barrel. So there will be a market for oil and gas, but it'll be way smaller. One of the ways that it's framed by an, an oil CEO that I've heard of is, you know, oil and gas up until now has always operated in a realm where people are sort of in scarcity mode, where yeah. the only source of energy that they're able to access is oil and gas. Now we're going to... Uh, a space where there's an overabundance of diverse ways in which you can get your energy and oil and gas really needs to operate in a way where it serves its customer or it won't be relevant. So it needs to stop thinking that it's, you know, we're the, the only drug dealer in town, pardon the analogy, um, to, Oh, we offer you this great product. Here's what's available. So there's sort of like a, a shift in thinking that needs to take place. And we're more than capable of doing this. Calgarians are incredibly innovative. We're incredibly forward thinking in lots of ways, but we need to actually be doing that in order to stay relevant in Do the sector. Do you think Calgarians are progressive? I, like I, yeah, I do. Yep. Yeah, I do. And do you think that I was like hesitating because it's been a really tough two elections, but yeah. I think deep down, and I'll say why. I mean, you look at City Hall right now. Today they were voting on budget. Hundreds of people wrote in to City Hall saying, "I'm okay with you raising my taxes by five dollars. I don't want to cut services to uh, the low-income transit pass." And you know, two emails were from from people saying tax revolt. <laughs> yeah. So it's like a hundred to two, really. And that's regular Calgarians saying, please save the pools. You know, please don't cut funding to the arts. Please don't cut funding to family and social services. I think Calgarians uh, don't like part, like we're very identity confused around party politics. And I think party politics is quite toxic um, because it's like this very it's kind tribal. of ironic for you to say as you just ran for two parties. Yeah, but that's why. I mean, I think people should win on their ideas and their, you know, but it's a really lazy way of doing politics to just say the party is the only like I vote for a party no matter what. Yeah, because you look at the Green Party in B.C. and the Green Green Party in uh, New Brunswick, it's quite different. You look at the Green Party candidates in Calgary, they're quite different. You look, well, at, look, at, the NDP. look at the liberals, yeah. like look at every party. There's an incredible <laughs> amount of diversity. Yeah, the NDP. It's, and that's the great thing about this country, right? We do have those different views, yeah. but we now live in a unsettled political time where we're in for a good ride for the next two years because, uh, hypothetically, let's say minority governments usually last two years. That's typical time, 18 months to 24 months yeah. or 36, depending on who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think we can diversify the economy, help the oil and gas sector in the next two and a half years under this 
government, do you think the conservatives, the liberals, the NDP and Green and Bloc can all get together and actually work together? Or do you think that we are such in a toxic environment politically that not a lot's going to happen? So I think the economy will continue to change. Yep. And it's going, we're going to continue to struggle. And as long as the the sort of cap narrative of environment is hostile to everything we do in Alberta perpetuates, yeah, we're we're gonna it's gonna hurt even more. It's gonna divide people more. That's all bad. Um, and as long as the United Conservative Party continues to buy into that narrative and perpetuate that narrative, it's gonna be really rough. I I have a lot of confidence that the Liberal Party will continue to reach out to Alberta. Uh, like I met with uh, the Minister of Family Services just before I came here. They are in Alberta a lot. They care deeply. Trudeau invested dub- more than double what Stephen Harper did in 10 years in four in Calgary specifically. They really do want to bridge that gap. I have a lot of confidence that that will continue to happen. And maybe the federal government will just be working directly with municipalities, frankly, like that, that could happen. With Nenshi, with Iverson, with... Totally. Yeah. 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 And, and they do anyways, because on housing projects, for example, it's federal dollars, but it, or even like legalization of marijuana. I mean, that shakes out mostly on where, where is it being sold? You know, under what conditions are you allowed to smoke? And all that's municipal regulation. So lots of things will continue to happen. I have full confidence in that. I just don't think that the, the political sort of like grandstanding is is helping anyone um and in fact it's really hurting albertans because it's perpetuating this idea that like we're all sad and everything's terrible and it's going to be terrible forever i don't think that's true um it's just it's hard to watch it's that two versus a hundred the voice of the few is loud so the voice of the many who's not active because they don't really aren't engaged or aren't uh really caring about what's happening because they are happy with everything that's going on. I will say, like, I don't, I don't think the ratio is two to a hundred. Like, I won't say that I think the majority, I don't think the majority of Calgarians are, you know, going to sign up for the Liberal Party tomorrow (laughs) by any stretch. Let's, let's admit it. 17% the last election. (laughs) I think we got 15 the election before that. So yeah, no, I, that's not going to happen, but I will say, I do think Calgarians or Albertans, um, you know, I, it's hard. It's hard to really predict. Uh, I think when you talk about politics in a policy by policy way, when you can have a nuanced conversation about the budget, for example, you'll see people's like true colors shine through, and that w- that's what gives me a lot of hope in in Albertans and Calgarians. And I was telling this to the minister that I was just talking to, and he was like, "You know, we never see that in Ottawa." And I was like, "Yeah, because the representatives that we send to Ottawa are denying that climate change is real. They're like completely backwards." They're only listening to like this really angry cohort of people. That's not the majority of Albertans. I think the majority of Albertans kind of like move and sway. And even when you look at the provincial election, like 45% is a pretty large minority. So it's not, it's not so cut and dry. And I don't think it's just that it's just a small angry minority. I do think a lot of Calgarians are angry, but, 
but they'll get it. Like, you can't run on fumes. You can't run on angry fumes for too long before you're like, okay, well, what do we do about this? And then, you know, there are things happening. There are hands being extended. There are conversations being had. That's all continuing despite what Twitter, what's happening on Twitter. <laughs> no, understandable. Yeah. So I want to talk to you about green women now. Sure. So this was an event that you went to the 27th, so this week. Yeah. Um, what's it about? How did you get involved with this? So one of my volunteers on the Liberal campaign was a really fantastic woman who started this organization called the Boring Little Girls Club. Okay. Uh, which is an organization that sort of uh, is just an antidote to a society that celebrates uh, everything with alcohol. And it's sort of the opposite of that. It's like we can hang out and spend time together and do things together that um, aren't alcohol centric. Um, and so they, you know, they have tea and they have dance parties and they have get togethers. And one of the things that they're doing is a, is a speaker series and uh, called the K2 speaker series. Uh, and they get just really fantastic uh, people to come in and, and discuss things of importance. And, and the one yesterday was about be, what it means to be a green woman. Um, so I, I, I have to ask the question, what does it mean to you to be a green woman in Alberta? I know we've mentioned it a bit here, but yeah. in a brief paragraph, what is a green woman to you? And why are you a green woman? Uh, I think it's someone who cares deeply about the environment and the role that we play, we as human beings are playing in, you know, the fact that the planet's temperature is rising and that we're, we have a role to play in, in addressing that. Um, I'm not under the illusion that like that means we're all just going to hug trees or like we're going to fix this. Uh, This is an actual crisis and it's very serious. And the role that we can play at this point is mostly adaptation and maybe mitigation of, you know, it maybe not being like a catastrophic disaster, but being like pretty bad. That's what we're looking at. Um, What it means to be a green woman means to continue. It was interesting in the panel because we had a woman who uh, worked formerly for as the environmental consultant for CAP. Uh, So like in the belly of the beast, you know, and a tough woman and uh, like nothing but respect for her. Then we had, you know, someone who was really interested in waste management and wanted to talk about like reducing consumerism. Another girl was talking about uh, urban agriculture. And and what was interesting about the speaker series is we all have really a different way of looking at it. And what I basically said was if we knew how to solve this problem, we would have done it 30 years ago, but we don't like, we need literally so many voices. We need solutions on every level from consumerism, from fossil fuel industries, from politics and from urban farming, like on every level. But do you think that that dilutes the conversation then when you have so many different uh, opinions, different viewpoints on how to solve issues like this, it then dilutes the conversation into, well, I think this and I think your way's wrong. Well, I would, I mean, no, I would say that the, the climate crisis that we're looking at is only going to be addressed in a multi, multifaceted approach. Like I was saying, like you need to, you need to get the oil and gas sector to go to low carbon, uh, lower carbon intensity, right? So you need less carbon footprint per barrel that has to happen, but that has 
literally not the same expert group, not the same expertise, not the same knowledge, not the same advocacy that you need for efficiencies. Yeah. And you need for uh, people building electric vehicles. And then you need other people building, you know, solar panels. And then you need uh, other people that are reducing, you know, advocating for buy less or buy local. And then you need like our food systems are a big part of the problem and, and food agriculture problems and pesticides and, you know, the carbon footprint on getting kale from California, all of these things are contributing to it. So you can't get, if you just get this one really simplistic narrative, then you get this, like, you're going to get a big backlash and you're going to confuse people to think that, like, I, I also think in, in many ways, talking about buy local doesn't appeal to the CEO of an oil and gas sector, right? Do you think it appeals to the average person? Buy local or? Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Because in, in today's society, we, we rely so much on Amazon. Let's be honest. Right, yeah, yeah. We have a major shipping uh, distribution warehouse in this city, and I will be the first to admit that I buy from Amazon because it's easy, and I can just click, and it will be sent here in five minutes. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do go shopping at the local mom pa shops from time yeah. to time, but Amazon's simple. And people, we are now living in a simple society, right? Yeah. So, I mean, yes and no. Like, y- the word feminist, right, yep. is another one that's like seems like this big blanket term, but like I've never met two feminists that are the same, you know? True. So you need, and that's the point is that it's about kind of combating this, these structures of society that are really confining, you know, and we need to be, there's the fear that, oh, well, you know, if we don't have like an all arching leader to lead the way, then it'll fall apart. I think that's, that's also problematic. Like, I think we all do play a role. And if your way of contributing to this problem or if your way of being a feminist or if your way of whatever is a way that works for you, then great. And I think we need to be having conversations around uh, how do we support a diverse society? I mean, I'm like kind of bridging these two uh, sort of unrelated ideas. But in the speaker series, one of the questions was, what does being a woman have to do with being an environmentalist? And I sort of had similar things to say. I mean, I think part of it is that as a woman, the default narrative in society is not yours, right? You're not the hero of every TV show you watch. You're not the uh, politician, you know? You don't see yourself in those shoes. So the narrative of society is society's, you know, person is this and it's not you and so you're always aware of this kind of like uh difference between you your story and who you are and then what the default mode of society is whereas now that feminism is a thing that people are talking about and i'm talking third way feminism and inclusion and diversity we're including more and different narratives and uh it scares some people but it's really positive because you see it kind of evolve in all of these different ways and that's really like we're all social creatures like you'll find your people and how you know and it'll express itself in all these different ways and that's great i wasn't gonna even touch on the subject but you brought it up so i need to ask you the question because we just had women's week i sat down with women from uh here one in toronto a few up in uh north and north and alberta yeah and they all had a different view on what feminism means shocking i know (laughs) so when you were saying this i was like i understand exactly what you mean because everyone has a different opinion and some would say uh, i do remember one who said she didn't consider herself a feminist because what she thought feminist meant right so 
Jordan. Yeah. What does feminism mean to you? <laughs> and do you consider yourself one? Heck yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I almost swore there, but yeah. <laughs> no worries. Yes. And proud too. Uh, so what I does mean, it mean to you? It means really fundamentally believing that uh, people can participate in society in a, in a society where there's opportunity available and it doesn't discriminate on who that opportunity is provided to. So it's for me, being a feminist is about uh, making sure that everybody has equal opportunity. It's not about equality in the sense that we're all the same because we're not, but it's making sure that like, if you want to be a politician that you have access to and you can see yourself in those roles and, and that's part of um, so, your, what you your dreams and if that's part of your dreams then that's a thing that's possible. So I just want to clarify what you meant by we're not all equal. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Well, like in the, the sense genders, that we're not all the same. Genders when, or as in just social economic or how do you mean we're not all equal? Well, we're not all the same. Really? So actually, this is going to sound so controversial, but I mean, like I. That's what I like. Come on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I fundamentally believe that, like, when people are born, we should have access to equal opportunity. Yes. Right. But the ways in which we choose to express ourselves are, are different. Okay. Like I won't, when I'm talking about, and so I should clarify, like I'm constantly talking about feminism with my fiance who's from Russia or he's not from Russia, but he's, he's Russian. Um, and he's an immigrant to Canada. So when we're having these conversations, like the perspective of what a feminist is in Russia is, is literally pussy riot and they're like in jail and, um, they're angry women that want to burn down churches, you know? So there, when we're having the conversation, he's saying, well, we're not the same. And I'm like, no, I know we're not the same. Like I, you know, wear dresses and I express femininity in a way that's like authentic to me. And you don't feel the need to express yourself in that way. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with us being different. Um, but we should have access to the same opportunity. That's really what I mean. Okay. Yeah. And I completely understand that. And I agree with that. Right. We should all have the same access to everything. Um, the, so the pussy rights, uh, it was banned, correct? Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that I'm getting that correct. Yeah. I did a bit of research, but I don't know fully. No, that's okay. So they were banned. They got jailed. Yeah. Over here in Canada, though, and I, and I hate to use the word, but it's what they call themselves. We have the slut walk. Yeah. And in the last election, we had a candidate for the Conservative Party back in Ontario saying, well, if women just dressed more conservatively, they wouldn't be raped. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> He went down to defeat. A liberal <laughs> did defeat him, but um, is that the same? What do you mean? Slut walk to the pussy riot. So, uh, feminism, yep. right? Yep. Big term. Um, pussy riot is making a very specific point in a conversation in Russia, right? And And the conversation that is being had in Canada is slightly different. I think they're making a point that... um, Women should be able to wear what they want. I don't think that's the point of... I'm not like well-versed on uh, Pussy Riot. No, and I'm not either. I'm just saying for the slut walk. So the slut walk is, yeah, I mean absolutely women should be allowed to wear whatever we want. And again, like we should be allowed to wear what we want. Uh, if that means expressing your femininity, amazing. If it means dressing like an air quotes 
slut and that's yeah. not the word that I would ever use. But <laughs> I'm just using yeah. the word that they, they've coined as what yeah. the walk was, right? Yeah. And I'm not saying that's what they are. I'm just saying that's what they are. No, no, no. I, I know what the walk is called. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, then that's that's that should be a right. Yeah. And, uh, and I think the point is that you would never hear someone like a man get assaulted. And the question from the police would be, what were you wearing? <laughs> right? Yes and no. Because we have to remember we do have gay men in this yeah, society right. who do get assaulted from other men, from women. From, yeah. So it is one of those double-edged swords, right? So men and women do feel it. Women, I would say women feel it a lot more yeah. than men, but I understand where you're coming from. Yeah, but from. you're, okay, to use a more, like, innocuous analogy, uh, you're a shop owner, someone comes and, like, throws a rock through your window, they're going to be like, well, what did your sign say? Yeah. Like, that would never happen, no. right? You would just say, you're like, it said open, you know. Come on in, we're open. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they're no. like, well, maybe you wanted that rock because you were inviting oh, the totally. rock. Oh, totally. Everyone yeah. just wants a rock to their <laughs> Throw window. in their window. Yeah, no. So where do we move forward from here? Wrapping up now. Sure. Environmentalists, feminism, yourself. Where do we move forward? Let's start with environmental. Um, so I, I have a lot of confidence. I'm more optimistic uh, than I would. Yeah, I'm optimistic that that the market is moving towards uh, renewable, that that's where markets are going. Whether it's fast enough is another question. Um, but I will say that's happening and that that gives me a lot of hope for the future. Um, and I think the more that people are protesting and advocating for this stuff, the more you have governments that will play a role in accelerating that change. And I think that's really, really important. So I hope people continue to participate in in advocating for and and striking and and all of those things. Um, and I will always continue to talk about environmental um, feminism. Totally. I, I think part of the way that I express my views of feminists is just literally being the woman that I wish that I could had seen when I was a kid, which and not to say that I didn't have role models as a kid that were women, but I never saw female politicians as being loud and vocal. There wasn't, um, you know, big advocates for things that mattered to me that were women when I was I just never saw that. So really like helping continue to, to model and to engage in conversation and to help people understand and talking to people that don't agree with me um, is really, really a big part of that because in Calgary, I think we're doing the most important work, which is helping people understand, uh, you know, we're feminist, but we're not, we're not angry. We're not mean. We're not nasty. We're not whatever you want to call us. Environmentalists, we don't hate oil and gas people. We don't like want to burn your house down. We're like... What's an environmentally friendly way of burning house down? <laughs> yeah. like, you know what I'm saying? No, like, exactly. Yeah. But we don't do, want to destroy your economy. We don't yeah. want you to not be able to provide for your kids. That's not what we're saying. You do spark a question that I want to make sure I, get, I ask this. Is it easy to be a woman in Calgary? Um, <laughs> I actually just saw her like have to think about this. Like you, you pause there for a second. Like every other question, you just seem to roll off. So is it easy to be a woman in Calgary today? I mean, I don't want to, I'm, I'm very privileged. Yeah. I like I'm white. I, I don't experience discrimination in the way that a lot of people in the city still continue uh, to experience. I think um, I'm very fortunate. You know, I can navigate interviews and jobs and, and walking through downtown and feeling fairly safe. And so 
compared to other parts of the world, absolutely, it's easy to be a woman in Calgary. I will say there's still a lot of barriers. There's still a lot of people at the doors that said, you know, hey, kiddo, or shouldn't you be at home cooking dinner or things like that wow. at the door? That's real. And so you, you felt the sexism. Yeah. And, and ageism. Okay. Um, but that's part of a society that's changing, right? I mean, I get it. I grew up in this town and, you know, all the people that ran the show were my friends' dads or people that I knew, you know, news friends' dads or people's dads. It was men. <laughs> it was all white men. Yeah. And, um, and there's, like, I'm... Yeah, I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm just saying that was it. And it's that's changing. And there's going to be a sense of um, fear and anxiety around that. And you do experience hostility, but not the majority of people. I've been very lucky to be supported by incredible people. Um, but I don't really know what it would be like to be anything else because <laughs> yep. I'm very lucky that I've always, you know, been able to, the gender that I was born into is the one that I express comfortably. So I'm very lucky in that regard. Um, I don't think it's easy for everyone in Calgary. Uh, and part of why I, I like engaging with people is to make sure that we are constantly creating space for, for everyone. Inclusion for everyone. Yeah. So what does the future hold for you, Jordan? Um, so I'm working in City Hall right now. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, and that's really interesting and fun. It's kind of similar to the work that I was doing as a candidate, except I don't have to be the face, which is really wonderful. <laughs> I can respond to emails and just, like, use my own name. and <laughs> <laughs> No party attached to it? Yeah, uh, which is nice. I mean, uh, I, I don't know. I, I love uh, doing advocacy work. I love uh, engaging with people and challenging conversations. I love learning about like, politics is so dynamic. You're talking about, like, even in this conversation, we're talking about inclusion. We're talking about energy. We're talking about economies. We're talking about, and that's kind of how my brain works all the time. So I can't. That's why I found you so fascinating. When I, when I was, I'm looking for people for the podcast. I'm looking like, I just, I scroll through Instagram all the time and I'm like, holy crap. And then I found you and I was like, wow, she is an interesting person. I want to, I want to sit down and talk to her because I think everyone has a story to tell. It's just, you need to tell that story, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. And I really, I, I should say, I really appreciate your podcast for doing this because the challenge I think in party politics, and I've said this before, and I was surprised that it didn't come up more, is like parties are really hard to they they come with a lot of benefits, and they also come with a, a burden in a sense. And I, I really felt that in this election, and and I even felt kind of when I went from NDP to Liberal, uh, a real sense of like, oh, she's not really progressive, or she doesn't really she care doesn't about the, the environment, NDP, yeah. she doesn't believe in the NDP. I mean, none of those things are true, and. I even when I like met Trudeau, I was like, you know, I'm orange on the inside. You know, I was a labor advocate, you know, yeah. like, you know, I'm literally running to yell at you about climate. And he was like, that's great. That's like, exactly that's why I want you here. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't change as a person. And and I love that you that you kind of dig into the story because people want electoral reform and I'm not saying they're wrong, but I think the vast majority of people don't even really understand how the current system works, let alone what the alternatives would yeah. be, let alone educating them on how, what that would look like going forward. Well, I know in uh, 2007, we uh, tried to do that in Ontario. We tried to overhaul our electoral system to right. proportional representation. And yeah. the 
we couldn't educate the people on how we would be voting if we went past the first past the post, right? Mm -hmm. And that was the big thing. They went, well, we don't know that system. We don't want to know that system. It's we want to so we, we want to stick to this system. Yeah. Well, and even when the Trudeau government made the promise, they did put together a group to investigate the ways of moving forward. They did focus groups across the country, which is small, intimate settings, which are the best way to learn, right? Yep. They took, you know, seven to 20 people and they said, okay, here's what we currently have. Here's the alternatives. There's PPR, MMPR, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, let's vote in this room as to which way to move forward. And not a single group could come to a majority decision yeah. on one way to move forward. So you know, there's a lot of vocal advocates in the city. I think it was really just a talking point about like bashing the liberals in whatever way you could grasp straws at. I was disappointed and I get it, but I think like we have to realize that we do live in a democracy where the vast majority of people still don't really understand how it currently works. Yeah. And you, you want to get a consensus. And on there's it. a vast majority of people who are not majority of people, but there is a vast amount of people who don't vote. Yeah. Well, not, at, not in Alberta. Well, yeah. But look at across Canada, right? What was their um, turnout this year? 60% if that. Yeah. Like, yeah. That just tells you that people aren't engaged. Yeah. Well, people are engaged, but not 40% of the population just don't want to vote. Yeah. So what's next? I mean, I would love... Politics again? I would love to help people understand how politics works. Uh, and not even from a partisan perspective, because uh, I, I have some time before I need to decide, you know, where I want to throw my energy and which party I want to uh, throw would my energy. Would you ever run municipally? I know you just started a job with the municipal government, so it would be a little bit harder, but... So I don't want to run in the next election, <laughs> for the record. I'm tired. Um, two is enough for a while. <laughs> two is enough. And, and I promised my fiancé that it would be at least four years, unless there's a by-election. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, to, the, before I run again. Um, but possibly, who yeah, who knows? I, uh, I I see myself, or what I'm kind of thinking about doing is, is helping uh, engage with young voters, so voters that will be eligible to vote in the next two to four years about, hey, this is the difference between a federal government. Uh, I know we learned this in school, but it's shocking how many people... Like, I got a call at the city today. Some guy was like, I need uh, my prescription refills. And I was like, did you know that you called a counselor's office? Like, I I mean, I appreciate that he was in pain. Like, yeah. And he just didn't know. But it's shocking how many people just have no, oh, well, what who's, levels who's going to help me with this? And I yeah. was like, we can't. Well, but. And, and it's actually interesting that you talk about this because in about two weeks where I, I, I sit down with mayors and counselors from across Alberta. Great. Yeah. To talk about municipal issues and what they are seeing. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, they often, what I often hear from them and what I've, the few that I've interviewed so far is municipal politics is the first line of politics that people care about, right? Yeah. Because it's their garbage, it's their water, it's their taxes. Well, the expression is you'll know within three hours if the city shuts down, you'll know within three days if the province shuts down, you'll know within three weeks if the federal government shuts down. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So, um, I give you credit for going into that lines, Den, because I... I 
I, I, I've only worked provincially, so I, I know the provincial government, and I know that we didn't we didn't take as many calls as the drug prescription. We did take some, but yeah. not as many that the municipal councillors and the municipal offices did. Well, and one plug I'll put in here is, like, if you're frustrated about what's going on in this province, call your MLA. Yeah. Like, make their life difficult. Yeah. Literally. And I and I know how hard it is to be a candidate, and I, but I, I really think, like, they, there needs to be an understanding that you're accountable to the public. And uh, there's a sense right now that that's not really what's going on in the, I, you know, whatever. I'm a partisan. I can say that. Like, yeah. I ran against Jason Kenney. I don't see a real accountability to the public right now. And uh, Especially with all the bills that they're putting forward. and Yeah, they're very t- out of touch with, you know, people that I've talked to, people that I talk to that are not even in my circle. I think it's making a lot of Albertans uncomfortable. And uh, even conservative Albertans, I'm hearing from, and they're saying this Rick is, Bell. Yeah. Rick Bell, literally, like what? I, when when he came out and said this is wrong, I was like, whoa, what happened here? You just were on. You were you were appointed to a committee, literally. First month, two months out of the gate, and now you're saying what's yeah. going on is wrong. Yeah, like if it was 20 below and I didn't want to go door knocking, all I needed to do was read a column by Rick Bell, and I was fired up. <laughs> like, that's how, like, and then to see him criticize Jason Kenney was like, oh, very interesting. Well, and I'm finding that a lot more mainstream conservatives are. Yeah, Charles, Charles Adler. Adler, yeah. Exactly, right? Yeah. You see him come out, and uh, while I never listened to his uh, radio show beforehand, I've listened to it a few times since and I'm like wow he, he's turning a page and even Michael Korn back in Ontario he's he was a prominent conservative and now he's come around because his daughter came out as a lesbian and she's very he's very much in opinion that you know what I was wrong for those 20 years when I was bashing same sex marriage on the Sun TV and now I'm like what is going on yeah people like in their 50s and 60s are now going you know what we need to be more progressive yeah and you know what like this is one of the attitudes that I always try to keep is like, welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the party. We're so glad you finally came. (laughs) Like, literally, because if we're just, I don't, when I say partisanship is toxic, talking only in your echo chamber is not helping anything. Um, You know, engaging people in conversation, that's literally how it changes. Like, I I comfort myself by saying I had, you know, I knocked over 10,000 doors in Glenmore and 35,000 in Confederation, and I got to have similar conversations to the one we're having now with literally thousands of Calgarians, and I heard so many different views, and I had an opportunity to just, in a friendly way, say, have you ever thought about it from this perspective? And if all I did was plant, you know, 40,000 seeds, that to me is worth it. Uh, and I think that's how people change is you plant that seed and then it like germinates a little. And then they, you know, if they hear of an article of some school kids that emailed, you know, this MLA 500 times and never got a response and you're like, oh, that isn't very cool. You know, th- these things like you, you start to get it'll it it works yeah yeah my last question for you Mm -hmm. looking back on the last year of your life yeah is there anything you would have done differently no that's a waste of time (laughs) (laughs) i mean like regret is yeah it's a waste of time but you wouldn't have not run an election taken some time off so like that's not to say that i've paid an enormous price for running yeah which I have. These people now know you as... I have gotten people that I grew up with send me emails that 
literally made me cry. So I've paid, you know, I've paid a price. I've had people not want to be my friend anymore that I knew. I've had uh, really nasty things said about me. And like, I know that when I don't know them, I can kind of laugh it off. And actually, one of the girls came up to me in the office today and was like, God, you take people being really mean to you so well. And I was like, I have a lot, a lot of practice. <laughs> a lot of experience yeah. that way. Um, so I have paid a price and it's, you know, been really heavy. And there are times where I'm like, oh, my God, I feel like I'm walking around the city with a big L on my forehead. Um, but someone has to do that. And honestly, like I, I wish that more people had, had done this. Like people did this when I was younger. I remember driving home and I tell the story a lot from, you know, every election at the end of the night, it would be like a long day door knocking and I'd be driving home and I would just be thinking of all the people that ran, you know, for the NDP in 1970 and like Airdrie. And they, like, I talked to their granddaughter and she remembers her grandma's house getting like toilet papered completely in the middle of the election. Like because that woman did that, I'm able to do this. And you know, the saddest thing is that like, I get some people saying mean things about me on Twitter. Like I didn't get my house toilet papered. So it only gets better the more we do it. And I'm for that. That was why I did it the second time. Cause I knew like, it's never going to get easier unless people do this. And you know, if I can do this now, that's my job. And like, that's my, if that's the way that I'm going to push this rock up the hill, I'm going to do it. And if it makes it easier and the burden a little bit lighter on the next generation, then it's worth every single like knock I've taken on the chin. Absolutely. Uh, I will say like, it was very hard going from NDP to liberal. I was really surprised actually, because I, I think I wasn't like a deep party loyal person. And I, I I mean, I'm loyal in the sense that my values are very, very, very strong. Um, but to me, my, my values aren't synonymous with a party. Um, I wish more people were like that. Me too. And I was, I was kind of like hurt that there were people that thought that the only way you can care about the environment is to like, you know, put a green party sign on your lawn. Like that's not true. That doesn't make any sense. Um, you can't, you know, care about healthcare and like, you can't, you know, you can be like, people are way more complicated than a party. So that, that was really hard. And, and I wish that it was like maybe a little easier, the circumstances that that happened in, but honestly, like no regrets. Like I, every day stayed true to who I am in the election under both parties. I, you know, said the same things in the election that I'm saying today. I hold the same values. I continue to tell the same stories. Uh, And I was able to, like the fact that I was able to run as a liberal in Calgary and talk about the environment and talk about these very progressive ideas to me is like that. It was great. It was an incredible experience. And, And I, you know, I just made more friends, so. So no, no regrets because it's all part of a journey and, you know, it makes you who you are. Totally. Like, and honestly, it was an honor and it was fun and a cool experience. And I, part of me is like my 13 year old self. That's like in my parents' basement. That's just like, everyone sucks. Like, (laughs) I'm like, cool. Like I just showed her that, you know, there's thousands of Calgarians that voted for progressive parties. There are thousands of Calgarians that care about climate change and, you know, inclusion and all of those things. And voted for you. And voted for me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. 8,000 people you thought you'd never have known. Yeah. And then almost 15,000 in 
uh, yeah. and confess. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, like, it's not nothing. That's real. That's true. Yeah. So. Thank you very much for doing this. Yeah, thank because you. Was, I don't want to take much more of your time. No, it probably, was fun. Thank you. Yes, thank you very if much. Someone's still listening at this point. <laughs> we, hey, we do have an active listener group, but thank you very much. <laughs> and one last time, thank you for our guest for coming in, sitting down with us. Much appreciated. But I also want to take this moment and thank you, the listeners, for tuning in, for subscribing, and listening to our great podcast. Without your subscriptions and feedback, we wouldn't have the ability to continue on this great adventure. If you haven't already, head over to Facebook, give us a like. Cross Border Podcast. It's easy to find. Just type in Cross Border Podcast on that search bar. Or Twitter and Instagram, both Cross Border Podcast. And with that, I bid you adieu. We'll be back here next Saturday with another great edition of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. 